Hello and welcome to the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle. Today, my guest is the fabulous James Lindsay. James is a writer and a mathematician with a background in physics. He is the founder of New Discourses, which is an initiative which seeks to help people to understand the new movement of critical social justice. He's also the author of Cynical Theories, a book that he wrote with Helen Pluckrose. How universities made everything about race, gender and identity and why this harms everybody. He's also the author of another book called How to Have Impossible Conversations, a very practical guide, which he wrote with a former guest, Peter Bogosian. Uh, We had a fantastic conversation. We spoke about critical race theory, intersectionality, the new religion of social justice and the linguistic games that its practitioners play and the importance of satire and what you can do to push back against this new illiberal and intolerant trend. So thank you very much for joining me. I feel like uh, I've already had Helen Pluckrose on the show. I've had Peter Bogosian on the show. I feel like I've now secured the full triumvirate of grievance studies hoaxers in having you on the show because, of course, together you all collaborated and you uh, hoaxed a number of academic journals uh, into publishing papers which were, frankly, ludicrous. Perhaps you could just talk us through what, what happened there for those of us who don't know about that story. Sure. Yeah. So in um, 2017 and 18, Helen Pluckrose and Peter Pergoshin and I, uh, we'd been taking a look at the gender studies literature and the uh, the other literature in fields that we might call theoretical humanities, which are more or less humanities disciplines butting up against the social sciences, pretending, I'd say, to be social sciences with none of the academic rigor. And we, you know, we saw a problem there. We we suspected that there was a corruption actually in in how they produce scholarship. And so that they were not producing legitimate scholarship. We thought, well, better way to both expose this and test this than to write a bunch of fake articles. Uh, and in fact, we tried to write as many as we could in a year. We succeeded in writing 20, which is rather a lot of academic articles. Um, and so we submitted them to the highest ranking academic journals that we could, high ranking feminist philosophy journals, feminist geography, believe it or not, that exists, feminist social work that also exists. And so we submitted these to these journals and um, tried to see what would happen. And so basically what we did was we started with these kind of preposterous conclusions and worked our way to them and worked in as much either silliness or absurdity or even kind of heinous or vile kind of stuff. So we had a paper about you know, dog sex that concluded with that we should train men the way that we train dogs to prevent rape culture. That when we started again, like, like I said, we started with the conclusion and worked our way there. And then, um, Secondly, you know, we had these kind of vile papers. We had a paper about education where we said we should chain students, white and male students by identity factors. We should chain students down to teach them a lesson about privilege. Uh, and that, you know, they were very warm and receptive to that. We had another paper that we rewrote the chapter, a chapter of Hitler's Mein Kampf and removed Hitler's Our Movement, meaning the Nazi party, the rise of the Nazi party and replaced it with intersectional feminism, but retain the mood, retain the language uh, to the greatest degree possible, given that it can't get caught as plagiarism uh, if they checked. And so, you know, these all three of those that I just mentioned were, were accepted for publication. And, and so, in fact, seven of our 20 papers were accepted for publication. Seven further were still under peer review. Probably four or five of those would have had a serious shot at getting accepted. And um, I think what we ended up showing, in fact, is that that peer review in these, these disciplines works the way it's intended. But the problem is that the peers are corrupt. Because at the beginning, we wrote six papers that just were absolute garbage. 
they were um, total hoaxes. We didn't engage with the literature. We didn't do any due diligence. We just wrote nonsense uh, with non sequiturs and every other thing. And we actually got called out by a reviewer who saw it for what it was. He says, you didn't engage with the literature. I don't think you even read some of these papers you've cited. Um, this doesn't make any sense. This isn't really what this discipline is about. You know, very correct criticism. And so we figured out that we couldn't just write total nonsense and trick them with it. We had to write uh, things that engaged with their literature and kind of flattered their biases, flattered their politics, flattered the idea that their scholarship is good and important and useful. And so once we switched to this model where we were doing that, uh, we had tremendous success. And so I think what we ended up showing is that peer review is working in these disciplines, you know, gender studies, et cetera. But the problem is that the reviewers themselves um, have a distorted view of what constitutes scholarship. Now, of course, the danger there is that uh, what we see as academic scholarship is considered, you know, the highest level of knowledge. It's not like a religious scripture, which we can kind of compartmentalize and say, okay, that's a religion. We understand that where it's coming from. It's not, you know, uh, something silly. It's, it's actually, it's not just, you know, a magazine where somebody could write literally any opinion piece or whatever. This is supposed to be the kind of thing that gets trotted out in parliament or Congress or something like that and is used to base public policy. You know, this is the highest level stuff. This is how we organize academia and what's going to be taught to students to become the future leaders. Uh, this is how, you know, people in the media are going to kind of skim by and say, oh, well, there's a study that says yada, 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 and support whatever other message that they're trying to say. And so if that's corrupted, we've got a big problem. And I think that we were very successful in exposing that. Like I said, seven papers accepted, four actually published. The dog sex one won an award for excellence in scholarship, despite being preposterous. Um, I think we showed that there's a real problem at the heart of academia with that project. And yet, it does strike me that a lot of people within academia were very angry with you for, for doing this, for exposing this. Surely they should have seen you as doing them a favour, because if the system isn't working and if people are simply accepting papers on the basis of the extent to which they satisfy their own preconceived ideas, then surely that should be exposed and they would welcome that, wouldn't they? Unless they are, in fact, frauds. Right. Anybody who's actually a scholar should have welcomed it. Uh, anybody who uh, is a fraud should would probably be expected to be upset. And so that provides a bit of a litmus test. Uh, but what we actually saw was something very interesting. Of course, you would expect that the gender studies and feminist scholars and critical race theorists would be very upset. And you would expect that. So that's priced in. Nobody has to think twice about that. But what we actually saw also sociologists became very mad at us because of the way this butts up against social science, where the sociologists shouldn't be mad at us. They should be mad at the people who are corrupting the reputation of their discipline through their shoddy pretend sociology. Uh, but we also saw people brought more broadly in academia who were upset that we insulted academia overall, or that we made peer review look less than perfect, where, of course, that's what they base their careers and, I guess, maybe their sense of identity you know, and feeling good about themselves, their self-esteem is rooted in believing that they're doing this high and mighty thing. And, you know, we showed that it's actually corruptible. And these people, rather than being upset at the people corrupting it, became mad at the people who exposed it. Yes. I want to talk to you a little bit about how we got into this position where we have this kind of, uh, as you put it, a religion, which is kind of dominating um, the universities. Of course, you wrote uh, a book with Helen Pluckrose called Cynical Theories, uh, how, to, how Universities Made Everything About Race, Gender and Identity and Why This Harms 
Everybody, which I think is a fantastic book. And I want to talk to you a bit about that. Um, and perhaps you could just talk through your, your general view of how we have reached the point where a university, which is meant to be about the production of truth and knowledge and free inquiry, in fact, is about replicating these pre-existing ideas. I know it's a big question, but perhaps if you could just talk us through uh, yeah. a rough overview of how that happened. So now we enter into a brief summary of the last century of Western philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just do that for me, Jim. That's, you know, shouldn't be yeah. too difficult. No, I mean, there was actually a concerted push. I, I've been recently reading a book that's uh, relevant to education. Uh, that's called The Critical Turn in Education by Isaac Gotsman. I think he's at Iowa, but I'd have to double check. Uh, Iowa University or University of Iowa, whatever it is. Um, but he's an education scholar in this kind of critical tradition, as it were. And he's actually written this book to summarize how education went from whatever it was before the 1960s to what it is today. And that would include both higher ed and uh, K through 12 here in the States, primary, secondary, I guess, more broadly. And um, he actually says at the beginning, he said, where did all the 60s radicals go? This is the first sentence of his book. Where did all the 60s radicals go? So, so they didn't go to yuppiedom. They didn't go there here. They didn't go there. They went to the classroom. And so there has actually been a concerted push to uh, following the radicalism of the 1960s, which was often violent and in the streets, much like we've experienced over the last two years here in the States, especially. Um, and it wasn't very popular. And so a lot of these actors actually did become... Uh, they, they sought to become professors. The goal became to radicalize a base of students. Uh, they actually call it the student movement. Uh, this was a new agenda coming out of the 1960s. And so the best way to do that, of course, was to become, take these 60s radicals and have them become professors. And so there's this creeping pressure to bring this kind of um, you know, self-referential uh, scholarship and very agenda-driven, politically agenda-driven scholarship into the universities from late 1960s going forward, but especially early 1970s going forward. And what the they found is that academics, I think in general, are particularly poorly disposed to push back against it. I think their um, academics in general tend to be too, I don't want to say too open-minded because it's not correct. What it is is that they're they're too willing to consider an idea just as an idea when there actually may be more to it. For example, implementation or, or radical politics baked into the idea. They're too willing to spend virtually an infinite amount of time dis debating about words and what words mean rather than realizing that the, the uh, intentionally double-meaning terms are being implemented in ways while they're arguing about the meaning of words and whether the ideas are, are good or bad. Another trait, and I hate to put it this way because it's a tragedy that we're, we have to say this, but that academics tend to be too charitable to ideas. They say, oh, well, it must be the absolute best meaning that one could take out of this the, these, these ideas must be the one that we should be focusing on, where in fact, it could actually be the worst one <laughs> that's intended. In a sense, this is a battle about language and about it the is. meaning of words, because whenever, uh, I mean, I've, I've had this again and again. So for instance, you know, say in the, the, the two, late 2010s, when lots of activists were claiming the word woke for themselves and describing themselves as woke. And now they revise that history and say, we never did that. It's just a right wing slur that's been applied to us. Similarly, with critical race theory, now people are beginning to understand what the tenets of critical race theory mean and what its implications are. The critical race theorists will start to say all that critical race theory is teaching of history, is learning about history, or they'll say that you don't understand what critical race theory means or that it's not being implemented even though it clearly is so to what extent is this is this going to be the problem is that every time is that they continually redefine words and deny that they're redefining them 
That's exactly what it is. This is actually a battle about language, exactly what it is. Um, Herbert Marcuse, even very explicitly in the 1960s and early 1970s, said that we must, in fact, create a second language. He even called it the alchemy of the word in order to do radical politics. When I say the we, I mean his movement, which was briefly called the new left, and it became what's now, again, Isaac Gottsman calls it the academic left. Yes. Uh, so people understand they- it's the Frankfurt School you're talking about, the the Frankfurt School, but also, and you can't get into the whole language thing without getting into the French postmodernists and poststructuralists also. So these are people who are obsessed with the way that language um, modifies and, and interacts with people's understanding of the world. The Frankfurt School is just very agendist with putting two meanings to words, uh, an activist meaning and a lay meaning. And so they will, for example, press the lay meaning get their way, get it approved. Oh, we just want more diversity. Nobody, who in their right mind would ask, what What do you mean by diversity? Nobody. They're like, oh yeah, diversity. Okay, that's good. We all know what that word means. You're going to look stupid to ask what it means, but then it has a very activist definition underneath it that once it becomes policy, the activist stricter definition becomes applied. Um, and then of course, with the postmodernists, uh, their view became, with Jack Derrida, for example, was so extreme that words don't technically mean necessarily anything. And the the meaning of a word is almost like Humpty Dumpty in, in uh, Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. Uh, the word means whatever the person not saying it intends it to mean, but rather the person who hears it also. So both of them have a complete subjectivity about what the, the meaning of the word is. So all of a sudden you break down the purpose of language entirely, which is to try to understand one another and create the same idea about something you're discussing because you are a subject and to speak very postmodernly, I am a subject. We are locked within our subjectivity. You have no direct access to my mind, but I can grant you some access to what's happening in my head through the use of language or symbols or whatever else. And they understood that this is the case and then completely muddied the water, taking it away from the idea that we're going to use communication to um, create a shared intention about the world and to put it into a everything's kind of up for grabs mm-hmm. uh you know, morass of language means what everybody who, who experiences it and uses it intends it to mean as or receives it to mean as that's happening and it can change at any moment. But they ultimately know, and like Marcusa laid this out very clearly, Frankfurt School Marcusa that uh, in the 1960s, we must create, he said, a second language um, that carries the radical agenda hidden within the word. He didn't say it in exactly those words, but that's what he meant. Mm-hmm. The other Frankfurt School guy said the same thing, by the way. Max Horkheimer said that it's not possible to conceive of the liberated world in the language of the existing world. And so you have this whole idea of creating what uh, the uh, Catholic philosopher Joseph Pieper called a uh, linguistic pseudo-reality, where yeah. there's yeah, an entirely different interpretation of the world that's mediated through putting politics into the meanings of words themselves. So you're seeing a kind of uh, conflation, I suppose, of the the Frankfurt School and the French postmodernists uh, who have this I- obsession with the idea that our, the, our reality is constructed through language, or at least our perception of reality is constructed through language. Right. And so in a sense, if you can control it or destabilize it, uh, then you will win. And, and in fact, I suppose the challenge for us then to push back is to effectively to, to restore the primacy of shared definitions as a means to, to, to discuss these issues and to give some very specific examples so that people understand what you're saying. I think it, it, it phrases such 
such as anti-racist, for instance, would yeah. be a very good yeah. example. So that uh, ostensibly that sounds wonderful. We're all against racism. Therefore, this gets taken up as po- as policy as it is being in schools in the UK, in, in, in government departments. It is being taken up because people think it just means being opposed to racism. And then it, then you realise it doesn't mean that. And actually what it means is quite the reverse in a way. It means what people used to mean by reverse racism in a very real way, but that's not the totality of the meaning Um, because it means that you have to reify racial categories and then kind of as, as Ibram Kendi phrase, it's best to just say it in their words, Ibram Kendi on page 19 of how to be an anti-racist explains that the only, the only remedy for past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy for present discrimination is future discrimination. That's a direct quote from his book. So in other words, being an anti-racist includes understanding racial categories and discriminating, but it's, it's, it's obvious he doesn't mean to continue, say, to discriminate against blacks as we did under Jim Crow and segregation. He obviously means to do it in the other direction in, in a kind of remedial or reparational sense and a reparative, I guess, is the right word there. Uh, so that isn't what people think they're taking on board. Oh, yeah, I'm against racism. I, I'm going to be an anti-racist. They don't think it means taking on discrimination. Yeah. With Robin D'Angelo, who is also very famous anti-racism crusader, she explains it's an lifelong commitment to an ongoing process in which no one has ever done. And it's all self-reflective and self-critical and confessional. And it's people don't realize they're literally joining a kind of anti-racism cult under her purview. No one has ever done. Uh, you know, that's, that, that's an intense commitment. And she says, you must engage in social activism. You must constantly engage what she calls social position, which means how is my identity related to the systems of power that they believe organize society. Um, And that's a lot more to take on than to think that racism is bad and we should, you know, not only not engage in it, but also should, you know, if if we see our friends or other people doing it, we should say, you know, don't do that. That's not cool. Like cut it out. Or uh, it's not what it means. It means something very more, very much more specific. To what extent do you think that this is a, uh, a kind of deliberate ploy uh, I mean, I give, I, I, one of the examples I often come back to is this idea of whiteness. And I hear academics always talking about whiteness. And then when you challenge them on it, they will say they're simply talking about an oppressive power system, a structure uh, that is in place. And it's not to do with skin color necessarily. Right. But then you hear yeah. them use, in the next sentence, they will use it quite explicitly to do with skin color. To give a specific specific example, when uh, the resisting whiteness conference was on in Edinburgh, they were they had a segregated space uh, for, for black people. And they also said in the Q&A afterwards, white people wouldn't be allowed to ask questions so clearly whiteness to them does have something to do with skin color when it suits them and then when it does it so in other words they can they can use these words that they know are going to provoke and that they know are going to cause resentment and then when that happens they can blame that person for misunderstanding for for being insufficiently schooled to know what it really means and do, do you think this is a deliberate ploy or do you think they are just uh deluding themselves both i would guess that it probably splits somewhere close to 60%. I mean, this is just numbers pulling out of my, out of the air, Uh, 60% deliberate, 40% that the machine is running. I keep telling people this, the the wokeness is not an indoctrination. It is a reprogramming. So people, you know, in education keep standing up and saying, we should teach our children how to think, not what to think. And I'm like, no, they are teaching children how to think very badly how to think about everything. And you you put your finger right on it. It's that you must think in terms of power dynamics and everything. So people who have become programmed to think that power dynamics are literally relevant to everything are going to do this automatic pilot in totally genuinely and sincerely. However, other people realize that 
that this is manipulable and uh, they are doing it deliberately. They are playing language games deliberately. I don't know if you know that you held up cynical theories that we nearly, instead of calling it cynical theories and on the covers, the little uh, trick where we crossed out critical and changed it to cynical. Uh, we were, we considered doing, uh, power games as the title and it was going to be based off of Wittgenstein's phrase language games and we're going to have the same trick language crossed out power uh, and, and so th there is a, a significant degree to which this is being done deliberately but there's also if you think about the world totally in terms of power dynamics and totally in terms of winning any exchange to gain power and get through it then if that if that's literally you've been programmed to think that way about the world then you will do it automatically without a deliberate malicious machiavellian uh kind of application of it regardless of the motivation the, the thing that you're you're you pointed out is actually occurring in virtually every situation let's just uh, delve a little more in, into this idea because i think what you're describing it's almost a, a kind of the way that the, uh, a, a theologian uh, might attempt to uh, uh, rationalize a deity into existence through through overcomplicated uh, theorizing uh, and, and language games. And um, because with the, with 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 the critical race theorists, for instance, and this common thing, they'll say, "Well, you haven't read Delgado, you haven't read Crenshaw, you don't fully understand the intricacies. Therefore, you cannot talk about this." And it, it strikes me that that is similar to saying that someone has no right to say they don't believe in God unless they've, they're fully versed in Thomas Aquinas. Um, you know, and, it's yeah. not, and it's not true because actually the, the fundamental premises of critical race theory are quite readily graspable. They're not actually that hard. I mean, obviously, it's, 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 it's very, there, are comp, there are books and there are nuances and there are complexities that you could delve into endlessly. But actually, the fundamental ideas are things that we can, as individuals, grasp uh, and the layman can grasp and, and decide whether or not to reject it. Um, so maybe just to counter that, perhaps you could just briefly... Uh, try and explain what what are the core aspects of critical race theory that we can all get hold of and we can all we can all uh, choose to accept or reject critical race theory is advantaged by making people believe that it's complicated yeah. i like to say that it's a mud puddle the size of one of the great lakes uh, there's no depth to it it is actually very readily graspable mm. critical race theory can actually be boiled down to the idea that there is a power dynamic called racism or white supremacy uh, that is couched in whiteness. Whiteness, in fact, was created as a form of, and literally they say property, such that white people grant themselves access to the upper echelons of society and they can grant it to other people if they wish, say Asians. Um, and they also have the fundamental right to exclude. That's from Cheryl Harris's uh, paper from 1993 called Whiteness as Property, which is considered foundational to critical race theory thought. But it's basically the idea that, that society is organized by this power dynamic and where every single individual must therefore think of themselves at some level, largely in terms of their group identity and how that group identity relates them to that power structure. As oppressed or oppressor, basically. Right. And so its goal is to use, if we were using kind of very Marxian language, we would say that it's to, to take control of the means of cultural production mm -hmm. so as to redistribute privilege. Uh, across that line. It's not necessarily interested in material resources. It's mostly interested in cultural resources. Um, yeah. Those are obviously intertwined to some degree, so it's not totally clean. But that it, it is the belief then that, that racism created by white people for their own advantage is the organizing principle of society. That's all critical race theory boils down to. Yeah. So everybody you know, goes back to Martin Luther King and says, we want to judge by the content of character, not the color of skin. But their, their essential claim is through a doctrine called structural determinism, is that the your relationship to the power dynamic 
actually structures your character. So it's not possible that there is no equality of character that who you happen to be uh, is, is, is determinant in terms of your character so that white people are raised in a, in a particular milieu that's privileged yeah. and that shapes their character and black people are raised in a particular milieu and that shapes their character with a double consciousness which is just a repackaging of rousseau's master slave dialectic it's a race essentialism and race determinism as well and it's saying that this is this is forever this is forever more because because it, it feels almost as though uh, that you know, a- any kind of inequality of outcome between the races it will be put down to a structural problem and evidence of what they claim. Yeah, yeah. But- As a matter of fact, Abram Kennedy says that explicitly. He wanted to pass an anti-racist constitutional amendment to the United States yes. Constitution yes. that explicitly one of the two principles. He says it's going to be based just on two principles. Which, by the way, he misspelled the word principles. Um, but he said it's going to be based just on two, and one of them is uh, that the races are equal. Which, okay, fine. And the other is that racial inequity or differences in outcomes will be interpreted as racist exactly so that but that's to start with the conclusion and work backwards then that's to, that's exactly uh, right uh, but but then by the same token if there is evidence of uh say um uh, someone from a racial minority doing particularly well i mean you know think of, well barack obama might be a good example that will be yeah. that will be explained away through this idea of interest convergence and as in uh black people can only do well if it is in the interests of white people for them to do so so in other words it's kind of rigged so that it's any a paranoid conspiracy theory it really is <laughs> yeah so any outcome can be used as evidence of their of their claims that's right. Every single outcome is evidence of their claims, except apparently when Ibram Kendi shot himself in the foot recently on Twitter by I saying, look how many white people pretend to be people of color so they can get into college. Um, he thought he was you know, saying how white people are bad people and of low character that they would do this. But and in fact, he was completely undercutting his own thesis. And now he sort of disappeared from the public eye for a couple of weeks because, um, you know, he incinerated himself. He deleted the tweet, uh, didn't he? I, I think. Yeah, and he made it worse. Within 20 minutes, he deleted the tweet, which is, you know, a confession. And so then, you know, then he tried to, like, the next day, he started trying to fight with people about it and put out a 14-tweet thread trying to, like, explain it. And then he got in a fight with uh, Jack Posobiec on Twitter that ended up it was just a complete catastrophe for him. Can I ask about the, this, though? Because I, I one of my main concerns is the way in which critical race theory is being implemented in schools. I mean, obviously, quite explicitly in the U.S. Um, There are endless books about critical race theory in education and this kind of thing. And yet, again and again, the critical race theory is saying this is just legal scholarship. This is just to do with the law. So, I mean, as as though we can't Google these books, as though we can't see, as though there aren't educators actually explicitly saying that they are informed by critical race theory praxis, praxis, as you call it, the idea of application in the classroom. Can you maybe talk to us a bit about that? I mean, it's just the same kind of language. Like, they don't want to be called woke anymore, so now we all have to pretend that woke is a bad word. Uh, It's the same kind of game, right? So if you read their literature, the first paper talking about a critical race theory of education was written in 1995 by Gloria Ladson Billings and William Tate IV. It's called Toward a Critical Race Theory of Education. I mean, for for goodness sakes. It can't be much more explicit. <laughs> and then, you know, everybody says, well, you haven't read Delgado. Delgado and Stefanczyk wrote Critical Race Theory and Introduction on a high school level, published first in 2001. Why would you write a book on a high school level if it's not meant for high school students. The second paragraph of the book in the first section, which is titled, What is Critical Race Theory? This, the second paragraph says it started in law, but it rapidly spread to other, other disciplines. And in fact, is kind of doing better in education than anywhere else. There are in books and books and books and books and books on this. And it's just a total, I don't know what the way to put it. It's just a lie. It's yeah. just a lie. 
a, a brazen lie. It's the kind of lie a little kid tells when like the chocolate's all over his face and it's like, yeah. did you get into the pie, you know? It's really fun. I mean, I've, I've heard people say, well, no one's saying that all white people are racist. And then you look at Applebaum's statement saying all white people are racist. 11 or, times or something in the book. I mean, and then, and of course, um, and Robin DiAngelo, who's course, dri- um, deriving a lot of what she's saying from critical race theory, says the same thing. All white people are complicit in white supremacy. She uses the phrase, all white people are racist. Like, so to just flatly deny what is written what is there in front of you, the observable reality, the things that they state themselves. I mean, it, it's maddening, isn't it? It's utterly maddening. It is maddening. And unfortunately, I mean, I, I know their theory well enough to know how they're doing it other than just to say that they're lying, which is that they, they have erected a concept called whiteness. And what they're actually talking about is if you have access to whiteness, that's unfair and bad. And if you don't have access to whiteness, obviously that's also unfair and bad. So whiteness becomes the problem. So whiteness gets scapegoated, but what is whiteness, right? And like I said, Cheryl Harris published a paper, whiteness is property. They tell you what it is. If you go back and read Marx and he, where he rails in the second chapter of the communist manifesto on the idea of bourgeois property, he says, we don't want to abolish all property. We just want to abolish bourgeois property. What is bourgeois property? It's private property. Whiteness is bourgeois property reframed in terms of race. It it gives you, it's like cultural property that gives you access to the higher echelons of society as they see it. And so it's the exact same framework that Marx laid out about the bourgeoisie versus the proletariat. But now it's that there's a racial proletariat that's denied access to the country club of whiteness. But why are all white people complicit they think they can just smear by saying all white people they even say all white people are racist explicitly sometimes like uh Applebaum, who you mentioned quotes zeus leonardo who's still i know his name's funny but he still is working he still is very influential in, in education and he actually she quotes him in in being white being good which is her 2010 book on white complicity saying that white people depend on their their, their very identity depends on white dominance and maintaining white dominance so it's very explicit but what they say is they think they can slide it by by saying no white people are complicit in this problem of whiteness they're complicit by virtue of the fact that they benefit which um applebaum says are benefits that you cannot easily renounce so you can't even walk away you're born bourgeois you can't get away from it you can't give away your your privilege the way you could say give away your wealth and join the revolution um and so instead you have to do this on like a moral level which is kind of if you read robin d'angelo's books as a puritan humiliation and you can see that's what's going on there of herself as well i think she's she's attempting to sort of self-flagellate in that book oh yeah i mean it's it's blatantly a puritan humiliation i don't know how much you know about puritan religious beliefs but they believe that uh eventually you know you 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 bid for salvation you 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 claim that you're saved you admit jesus into your heart or whatever um and then you uh to reach the state that they call justification, uh, which it precedes sanctification, which precedes glorification, which is when you go to heaven, uh, in order to reach the stage of justification that your salvation is actually stuck through your claim to salvation, you actually have to go through and humiliate yourself against how fallen you are, how depraved you are. And so the Puritans are kind of this very extreme, you know, self-flagellating sect of Calvinists who believed in the total depravity of Calvinism. And they, so they, they, they claim, I want to be saved. And then they just talk for the rest of their lives about how wretched they are and how they don't deserve it. But I think that's that's where the analogy breaks down slightly insofar as that the Puritans were always very much aware of their unworthiness before God and their own their own infallibility. And that is not something that strikes me that I'm seeing among the new Puritans, among the among the uh, disciples of critical social justice. 
they have this they see themselves as the elect whereas in calvinist theology nobody knows who the elect are even exactly. if you are elect that's my point because I'm, I'm 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 actually writing about this at the moment i'm using puritanism as the as an analogy more than anything because i see it as, because we have this culture where they do demand a moral purity as they see it and and so the analogy is helpful in terms of explaining it but i think they are a different beast ultimately when it comes to they the are th- for the exact reason they see themselves as as the, among the righteous mm. uh while they humiliate themselves almost like a fake thing it's almost like a virtue signal like look how humble and pious i am in they invert everything it's like they somehow inverted the the kind of pathological humility of puritanism and turned it into a pathological arrogance posing as humility against the anti-racism by the way just just since you you mentioned something earlier and i forgot to say something about this you mentioned you know uh, that this reminds you of a theologian like using language to spin a god into existence and reify and then deify uh something and you know i don't think enough people understand this that that if what we're seeing in a sense is very pagan and i don't mean that and you know kind of the way christians would would throw it around uh it's very pagan in the sense that you know pagan religion could be kind of boiled down to that there are these kind of powers in the world and they're personified in these deities zeus or uh, poseidon or Ares or whatever and uh they have you know different dominions and what has happened is we that's a pre-modern conception of how power in the world would work is that you would personify it in a deity but this sprung out of a modernist and postmodernist line of thinking kind of on the the border between the two of them and so what they're actually interested in is systems of power and how those are held up by structures of language and so they've spun systemic racism is no different than poseidon it is mm-hmm. systemic sexism and misogyny is no different than aries i mean we could pick demeter, demeter or whatever you pick your favorite one it doesn't matter the point is that they are like pagan gods that we are the playthings of those gods yeah uh, the systems of power it's like a modernist or that's systems is more like modern structure. And then when it's language, it's more postmodern. These discourses become these kind of deity figures that, sh- but nobody believes there's a deity there. Nobody personifies it. And so it's very important to think of it. That's actually the thing is they're spinning into existence very much like you said. And, and even when there is no evidence to support any particular accusation of systemic racism in a particular institution. So for instance, when they say, this university is systemically racist and then you point to the data that shows that it's you're far more likely to to get in if you if you're a person of color for instance so therefore the, and and there are no reported instances of racism on that campus even if you say that and even if there's data to support that they will say well that doesn't matter because like a god it's unfalsifiable it's 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 just there and you just have to accept that it's there that's right it works in mysterious ways and uh you know when things don't go the way that they should it's because they got mad you know it's it's very um it's very much a reinvention in a new context. And I really think the pre-modern versus modern versus postmodern division, which is going to be, you know, um, kind of personified deities in the pre-modern era to structures, Marx was concerned with superstructure of society, to um, discourses in the postmodern. And what we are dealing with actually with woke is a blending of structural thinking and discourse-based thinking. But would you acknowledge that there can be, just to give them their due, that there can be instances of structural racism? I mean, Jim Crow is an example of a sister, a systemic race. That was a system of racism put oh, into yeah. place legislatively. It can exist. It is possible. Um, it is also possible that people who are descendants of, of people who have been disadvantaged in this way still retain some of those disadvantages. I'm thinking of, for instance, ha- uh, housing segregation in the major cities in the US. Th- th- would you acknowledge that these things ought to be ad- addressed and, and, and accepted? 
I would be very careful because I understand the nature of the linguistic games that are played around these things. Certainly there are phenomena of the types that you point at that are real and that are consequential and that deserve our attention. Mm-hmm. The, the question is, how do they deserve our attention? Is a critical theory necessary to take this on or can we approach this through the... Um, the, the, it's hard because it's a critical method within liberalism, but the critical is a word that means two things here. Can you approach this from the, the liberal tradition, for example, that we've had over the last 250 years throughout the West and address those problems, say, based on evidence, based on, you know, let's do some trial and error and see what actually works, what actually succeeds. Um, and my answer then is there are certainly phenomena that are occurring that do not render everything equal. This is, I think, quite clear. Um, the question is, is, is how are we going to about, go about analyzing it and how are we going to go about addressing it uh, where, where that first analysis merits addressing it? Because some things are better left alone. Some things are, and, and they'll work their way out naturally, not all things. Um, yeah. They like to accuse, oh, you, you know, conservatives, for example, just want to ignore problems and that's how they fester. Not always. Some problems actually, you know, letting it blow over is sometimes the correct thing. Letting it work its way out naturally is sometimes a correct thing. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes an intervention is necessary. And then it's so if we, we deem that an intervention is necessary, then what, what is the right intervention? What is the right approach? And it doesn't seem that critical theory of or say race or whatever offers any realistic solutions right. um, or even a fair analysis. Like they, 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 we've all heard of now, I think it's been popularized at least on, on social media, the so-called univariate fallacy where you kind of condense everything to one variable yep. and everything has to be understood in terms of that one variable, uh, which is a terrible way to do analysis in a complicated situation like sociology. There are probably thousands of variables that are relevant and um, there are at least dozens and just a quote from Gloria Ladson, Billing, and William Tate in that paper I mentioned, the Toward a Critical Race Theory of Education. They say that critical race theory exists, and I quote exactly with italics on the word the, the to make race italics the construction for understanding all inequality. So in other words, it is it is fundamentally reductive. It is just saying we can simplistically explain everything by reducing it to this one uh, variable, which is race. For which they have no solutions. Their, well, their that, solution boils down to give us all the power, let us administer the situation into an equity uh, state, and eventually we can believe it will become spontaneous, at which point we'll have justice. Yeah, but that's, and, I mean, all the evidence seems to suggest that when these ideas are implemented, it makes things worse. It makes those the, the things they seek to address even worse. And, well, and, and, and this is why, if you understand it, is Marxism reframed in race and Bolshevism in application with a vanguard party of, of, of elite that are going to guide us through. Uh, the transition, it becomes very simple. And Lenin said, accelerate the contradictions. He said, you know, Lenin, the people are starving, accelerate the contradictions, comrades. When the contradictions become more and more and more apparent, then we'll move forward through socialism and communism. Here, when the contradictions become more apparent, then we can force more equity down people's throats and it'll eventually become justice. It's the same model. But, and, and yet they will, they will completely reject uh, the liberal approach to redressing inequality uh, on the grounds that racism still exists. And they say, therefore, well, liberalism has failed. The, the project- oh, it's so much worse than that. Uh, <laughs> I actually read this when we were together in London uh, a few years ago. Um, this is straight out of a book by D'Angelo uh, called Is Everyone Really Equal?, and so she says that these movements, meaning, you know, the liberation movements, feminism, gay rights, black power, critical theory, postmodernism actually are all listed. Uh, these movements initially advocated for a type of liberal humanism, individualism, freedom and peace, but quickly turned to a rejection of liberal humanism. 
the ideal of individual autonomy that underlies liberal humanism, the idea that people are free to make independent rational decisions that determine their own fate, was viewed as a mechanism for keeping the marginalized in their place by obscuring larger structural systems of inequality. In other words, it fooled people into believing that they had more freedom and choice than societal structures actually allow. Literally a conspiracy theory about how society operates. Well, it, it robs us of free will, of the very possibility of any kind of agency. I note, actually, I was rereading White Fragility recently, and she always uses these metaphors about swimming in waters, the, the waters of culture, that we're, the, the metaphors of fluidity. And it, it's, it's, it's like we're just being bounced this way and that. Against, there's nothing we can do to change society. But of course, what the liberal project, what social liberalism has proven is that we can make uh, progress. We've seen it since yeah. the civil rights movement. And to deny that because we haven't reached a utopian world where racism doesn't exist. That strikes me as an incredibly myopic stance. Not only that, it's stupid. It's stupid. It's just (laughs) stupid. Um, That metaphor about the water, that of course comes from that old saying, that that old story where two fish, a parable or whatever, two fish are swimming along, an old fish and a young fish. And, you know, the one fish says to the other fish, uh, you know, something about the water, you know, is nice today or whatever. And the other fish, the young fish says, what's water? Because he's just immersed in it and doesn't know what's there. Like I can wave my hand right now and feel air. Like, we're not that stupid. You actually, like if you were in water swimming around, you would feel the water. You would, if fish or octopi maybe are, you know, intelligent enough to be able to articulate their experience of the world. If they were, would definitely understand water. And in fact, as they would like to point out, they would probably have thousands of words for different, you know, densities and temperatures and and flows of water. Uh, They would be very aware of water. It's exactly the opposite as their very childish metaphor. And that very childish metaphor that they press into their surface is the basis of their entire worldview, which just reveals it's again, is it, is it complicated? No, it's, it's as deep as a mud puddle. But is it even a mature way of viewing these very important and complicated problems? No, it's a very immature way. It's literally based on childish analogies and the ossification of prejudices and stereotypes that were relevant 70 years ago and have be have been but decreasingly relevant since. And, and in addition, I suppose it's the demonization of anyone who dares to challenge their view. I think this is because, I mean, you, you've re- repeatedly uh, made the connection with, with Marxism. And I think this is one way this 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 is dangerous territory in a way, because people will say because when we talk about the way Marxism took a cultural turn uh, a, 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 and, and, and the focus was no longer on money and economic inequality. And now it was on identity groups. Um, and the problem with saying that is, and then you have the phrase cultural Marxism. Well, the phrase yeah. cultural Marxism has been used by anti-Semites yes. and, and has got baggage, this kind of anti-Semitic baggage. However, I note that some of the people who use the term, they really don't mean that. They really don't. They're talking about something different and yet they will be accused of therefore being fascist. And so how do you talk about this this sort of uh, the Marxian uh, foundations of this thought without opening yourself up to accusations of anti-Semitic conspiracy theorizing. There's so many things to say. First of all, I'll just point out, if you don't know, Wikipedia used to have a pretty good entry for cultural Marxism that acknowledged and discussed the anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, but also mentioned at least two other meanings of the term, one of which is the one typically associated with the movement that started in the 1910s and 20s by uh, the communist thinkers, George Lukács, in Hungary and Antonio Gramsci primarily in, I mean, there, there are others as well. Yeah. Uh, Gustav von Schmoller was probably, uh, for example, involved in laying some of the groundwork, but uh, Antonio Gramsci in, in Italy. And so um, 
there was a movement to shift analysis out of economic issues into cultural issues. That movement- Explicitly uh, stated as well. It's very explicitly stated. So so Wikipedia's covered that up now. If you go to Wikipedia and you type in cultural Marxism, it just takes you to a page called Cultural Marxism Conspiracy Theory. It just talks about how it's anti-Semitic. So again, we have this redefinition and trying to hide the fact. Um, How you- how you avoid being accused of it is actually by having spent long enough like I have to be able to tell the actual story that, okay. you know, no, there are these characters, George Lukács, go look him up, you know, uh, History and Class Consciousness is this book he wrote, go look at it. And you can see there was this idea, this shift out of, they, they openly said Marx was wrong about some stuff, but not everything. And we still want to get to the revolution. And so they focused on high culture versus low culture and the role that middle culture or pop culture plays. And this is what the so-called Frankfurt School really took up with. And we often refer to that as neo-Marxism. And then it didn't turn identity political or attach cultures to identities until much later. It didn't turn identity political until the late 1960s when Marcuse said, whoops, capitalism has stabilized the working class. We need to find that energy, that revolutionary energy somewhere else. Where is it? Liberation fronts, ghetto population, that's his words. Um, So the racial minorities, sexual minorities, feminists, unemployed, outcasts from society, radical outsiders, and the students, the radicalizable students. So that's going to be our new cobbled together. He even calls it the new working class explicitly, meaning the new radicalizable proletariat. And then identity politics works in. And what happens is by the 1980s, um, that gets very explicitly, you know, identity Marxian or identity Marxism. The identity divisions become the new axes of power, what Jose Medina in 2013 calls having a kaleidoscopic consciousness that understands the intersecting power dynamics of race, sex, gender, sexuality, disability status, and way down at the end of the list, like three miles down the list, class, um, and how they they Or often not mentioned at all, just elided every now and then. But it was the postmodern turn where people like Foucault said, you know, that, that, that knowledge is culturally contingent. And the cultural groups have their own beliefs about what is knowledge and what isn't. And, you know, the, the, the postmodernists had imported a lot of the kind of very early cultural anthropology that was extremely cultural relativistic and, and wrong and um, in, in doing in, in that. And so that when postmodernism started to get infused in in the 80s is when you actually have this turn to identity groups being identified with cultures and those cultures being, you know, controlled or determined by these systemic power dynamics that the neo-Marxists laid out before. So it's not strictly the same as cultural Marxism, though it uses many of the tools, say, that were laid out by Gramsci for how to enter into the cultural producing uh, entities of society and overturn it. But I would say that, you know, broadly, what cultural Marxism would mean is that it, old school, what they call vulgar Marxism or economic Marxism, sought to seize the means, explicitly seize the means of material production. They just said seize the means of production. They meant material production. What we might broadly consider as cultural Marxism is to use the same kind of theory, the same kind of methods, the same kind of thought, the same kind of approach to seize the means of cultural production. Who's going to control media, education, family, religion, law? Those are Gramsci's categories that needed to be infiltrated and, and taken over from within culturally. And it's always worth re-emphasizing with Gramsci and with the, this notion of the long march through the institution. This was an explicitly stated notion. This isn't some kind of like uh, something that, that, that people have created. Uh, it was an en- explicitly entryist uh, approach. But then we get to the point of saying, well, did that actually happen? Or did these things just occur as, as, a, as almost by accident? And that, that is my feeling in a way that actually it, 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 this long march through the institutions has, has almost come about uh, arbitrarily, I suppose. 
Well, I, I did think so for a while. Um, and I think if we, there's this big debate, well, not that big, but within kind of these circles, there's an interesting debate as to whether or not Mao knew Gramsci, meaning knew his work. Mm. It is plausible, actually. He did know of Gramsci, but whether he had read the prison notebooks and what later came to be termed the long march of the institutions is unclear. What's not unclear, and scholars generally agree, Mao did what Gramsci thought. Uh, whether in in knowing it or not, the long march through the institutions was named by Rudi Deutschke, a communist uh, German communist in the 1960s, based on what Mao was doing in his Cultural Revolution. And uh, Marcuse explicitly praises Mao and his revolution in almost all of his 1960s and early 1970s writing. I don't think that he. I do think Marcuse was an evil guy, but I don't think he was necessarily I, evil here. I think he was ignorant of the atrocities of China. I suppose what I'm saying is, though, that we can, we can explain this stuff without having recourse to conspiratorial thinking. Is what Correct. But, there, but I don't think we should actually throw all of the conspiratorial thinking out of the window because it okay. is, there was, there was a deliberate movement within, say, the Weatherman Underground for all of them to become K-12 activists after bombing things turned out to be publicly unpopular. They deliberately moved into education knowing that that was essentially how you can really grab hold of the cultural levers Yes, but we're now in a position, though, where teachers, activist teachers go into the profession as activists first and foremost and teachers second, but they're not thinking about this. So this is my metaphor for that, right? Not every congregant in a church is a pastor and not every pastor is a theologian, but it it works the same way. These activists on the ground have probably never read Gramsci. They probably don't know who Gramsci is. They probably don't know it was translated by Pete Buttigieg's dad at Notre Dame in 1970. Uh, They they probably just don't know these things. They probably haven't read much Marcuse, although I do occasionally run into ones who have read Marcuse. Um, They maybe haven't even read Crenshaw or very much Crenshaw, but Mm -hmm. they do, they have, they have taken on the mindset that is built up over a century. They've, it's like they're culturally, christian except that it's not christianity it's it's critical theory yeah. they, they seem to embody that the 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 essay on repressive tolerance the marcuse essay on repressive tolerance without necessarily having read it in fact i'd say marcuse is rarely rarely cited foucault is cited a lot well there is an educational theorist who probably did more to change western education than any other person in 100 years his name's henry Giroux, uh g-i-r-o-u-x and um he does explicitly cite Marcusa Adorno, so he's a postmodernist, but he explicit, or sorry, a neo a neo Marxist. He, he explicitly cites um, Marcusa and Adorno. He explicitly cites um, uh, Derrida quite a lot. So he relies very heavily mm. on Marcusa explicitly. So that line where you see where his thought has been woven into the fabric of what's going on yes. through education is actually clear. The thesis statement of repressive tolerance is we must tolerate movements from the left. We must not tolerate movements from the right. It's almost worded exactly that way, very near the end of the essay in extreme clarity. He even has a whole paragraph where he talks about how violence from the left is acceptable, but violence from the right, of course, is completely repressive. Yeah. And that the right, in fact, not only shouldn't be allowed to react or whatever, they should be censored. And even he says pre-censored. He says, you must stop the thought before it enters into the reactionary's mind. And if we would have just done that, if we would have just, he says, if we would have withdrawn democratic tolerance, we could have avoided Auschwitz in a world war. And so if we just stop right-wing people from thinking by screwing around with the language and censoring them, 
and then we can avoid the worst atrocities of uh, future history. That's what I mean. It's so explicit, and, and it has so many echoes in the in the in the mindset of 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 the way that activists behave today, whether they know about those origins or not. It is it is the way that they think and the way that they behave. It's how one would think if you believed you're on the right side of history. Which, yeah. by the way, is an article of Hegelian faith. That's one of the very meta narratives that surely the postmodernists would 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 have wanted to break down and. And, and destroy the thing I mentioned in the 80s when the postmodernism got fused into the neo-Marxism, where you had social constructivism get turned into what's called critical constructivism. If you want to know what woke means in the academic world, it's critical constructivist thinking. The world is largely socially constructed, but we have to understand even the application of social constructions through a lens of power dynamics. And so what actually happened there was, you can read this explicitly in Kimberly Crenshaw's 91 essay, Mapping the Margins, is that they say, well, well, you know, identity categories are imposed upon those oppressed by them. So deconstructing them, it can only take place. That's a a privileged perspective. The, The person in the oppressed perspective couldn't possibly deconstruct these things. So we now have to think, oh, well, if, if, if identity category, racial category, for example, is imposed upon us by a power structure that exists as a critical theory, even though it's socially constructed, we have to act as though it's real. And in fact, we have to lean into it. So Crenshaw openly rejects the civil rights movement by advocating, you know, we have a choice between I'm a per- I am black and I am a person who happens to be black. And she criticizes I am a person who happens to be black by saying it strains for a certain universality. And it, uh, she says, in effect, saying, I am first a person, which, of course, is true. You are, in fact, first a person. Uh, and then she says, though, that if we lean into I am black, it's an anchor for subjectivity and a fruitful site for a meaningful politics of identity. So it's very clear what has happened there and why it reifies race and leans back into these categories. And it's because it's politically useful to them. So what all of the, these these uh, these theorists have in common is, is this idea that they are they have this certainty that they are on, as you put it the right side of history and therefore they can legitimately say violence from the other side is violence violence when we we do it is is not um, yeah. uh, words from the other side a form of violence you know etc they can they can do all of this but we we and I often hear in fact the Karl Popper paradox of tolerance thrown up in this case it, it, this will be the defense is in other words look, we just don't want to tolerate the intolerable. And surely we can all get on board with that. Surely there are some ideas out, out there in the world that none of us should tolerate. Um, what, what is your response to that when they come, come at you? They should read the whole paradox of tolerance articulation. And it's a footnote. So it's literally one paragraph. It's not even that much to read. If you actually read what Popper wrote, he says what the line is. He says that the line is when it's legitimate threats of violence, when the guns and the knives are being brought out, the pistols, I think is how he phrase is it says when you absolutely he gives the he gives three if i remember correctly three different categories one is that it's actually you know at the verge of tipping into violence then you have something you must uh you must respond to he also says that it's when you ha- when when it cannot when an opinion can no longer be held in check by by basically public opinion you know yep. we can't kind of exclude it by the soft power of the overton window when it's starting to grow and fester and get too powerful then you have to worry about intolerance but uh and it's also when it w- refuses to respond to argument which yep. is very ironic they can't say the entirety of popper's conditions for when we should withdraw tolerance because it just blatantly applies to them it absolutely does that's the and that, this i suppose is the danger of an ideology that reconfigures words as as violence or has the, the words as potentially violent because then they can use popper to justify their their views there because they can say right. you know they can apply that you know to you know we're not talking about pistols and guns here we're talking about someone saying trans women are not the same 
as biological women and they will say but that is beyond the pay- that is not tolerable uh, right. we've just de- we've decided it's not tolerable and therefore we can apply this theory this idea right because their logic is that the entire metaphysical structure of the ontological structure of society is such that it creates oppression so long as people are allowed to think talk and act the way that they have in the past yeah Uh, there's no possibility of the idea that, you know, we actually can have moderating views that we think very differently about race. For example, now a general lay person does than they would have in say 1850, uh, just like literally biological racism has more or less died out. Mm. Uh, people just don't think of it that way any longer. So we don't, we think it's, it's, it's terrible to, to think in somebody's superior or inferior based on racial characteristics that was not the case 200 years ago people thought it was just natural and so literally they thought it was like how the world works and so now you have this completely different paradigm that that we operate in and they believe no that can't possibly change without revolution because the entire point is to get to a revolution in which they get to reorganize who's the elites and in control of society which conveniently gets to be them because everybody else is a chauvinist or a racist or a sexist or something uh this is, I mean, all Marx's, again, I'm going to invoke Marx, all Marx's theories were in the first place was a way to look at the the transition out of aristocracy into capitalism, looking at the fact that capitalism has a hierarchy and therefore, especially in industrial capitalism in the 1850s and 60s, definitely had a, a you know, kind of de facto aristocracy, you know, working in the big capitalist centers, especially as they started to form monopolies. And what he said is, no, 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 what we want to do is we want to go back to an aristocracy that I'm in charge of, but we're going to call it socialism. And we're going to reorganize society. And the new aristocracy is going to be the politically enlightened socialist man who understands the socialist, uh, you know, science or whatever, Wissenschaftlicher, Socialismus, or however you say it in German, uh, that only socialist man can understand. And so it's just just the attempt to reorganize a new aristocracy of people who they believe are uh, politically and spiritually enlightened into the true structural workings of the world. It's a, it's a, it's a cult. I mean, I see them as the clergy, you know, they, they, the ones with the unique, just as they are the only ones who are qualified to detect the power structures because they've read Crenshaw, etc. They are, they are, they are, they are, the, they are the ones who get to make the rules. We all have to defer to that. They're Gnostics. We've talked a lot about the origins of this, how it came about, and and there are, as you've pointed out, there are debates to be had about the extent to which there, were, you know, this was implemented consciously, or whether it is a sort of concatenation of various circumstances, one thing's after the other. But we are where we are. We are now in a situation where, for instance, the National Education Union here, so the biggest teaching union, is saying we need more activists in the classroom. We need to decolonize the classroom. We need to decolonize uh, at primary school level, at young young kids. You know, that's happening. Those people won't have read. Uh, they won't probably even read uh, uh, Macintosh on white privilege or any. They won't have read all these texts. They don't know where it's come from. We are here, though, where they have imbibed it, it somehow. Teachers have imbibed it. Reading lists across the UK even have now got Robin DiAngelo and Kendi on it as though critical race theory can just be lifted wholesale from US politics and history and mapped onto a completely different context, which it can't be. It's incoherent, but it, it's happening anyway. Uh, we've got pe- uh, people at the BBC telling their staff to take a day off and to read books such as D'Angelo and Kendi and uh, the book In Defence of Looting and things like this. So, so we have this now. It's here. And it's being promulgated by those with, with who probably don't understand the origins. So how do we 
tackle it then because by that point it's almost running as you said earlier almost on autopilot at this point the programming has been done and this and it's, the system is running away with itself how can we possibly do anything about that yeah that's actually there, there are no pretty answers to this question um we're in the midst of a cultural revolution across the West. There are no pretty answers for how to, there's no friendly answer, no safe, happy answer. Uh, I will point out, by the way, that the goal, they, they, everybody talks about, you know, we must put it in the classroom, activist teachers. They, it's always good to remember why they say that. It's They say that they want to make students into change agents, which should give everybody the heebie-jeebies. I haven't uh, heard that phrase before, change oh agents. Change agents. Where does that come from? everywhere it comes from <laughs> marxism it comes from marxism is what it comes but that's their favorite term for what they're trying to produce is change agents out of i don't know how i've missed that one i don't know how i've missed that one no it's it's so it's so so nasty so orwellian but uh the the way that you have to tackle this is actually by delegitimizing it without any concern for what you delegitimize along with it that's been corrupted so if you have to delegitimize the entire higher education system because it's so corrupt, then you have to do that. It has to be, everything it has infected has to be delegitimized until it renounces it. Um, people who are in these positions of power when there is the sufficient will to do so must be removed from the positions of power that they're abusing. Um, the point of education is not to make change agents and people who think that that is the point of education should not be educators or in education at all. That's the where it has to eventually get to this is complicated now though isn't it because uh th just to bring back your book how to have impossible conversations this is the book you wrote with peter um yes. now i i i from what you're saying now it sounds like maybe you, your your stance on this has modified to a degree because within that book there is a belief ultimately there is a faith in humanity there's a faith that we can uh, employ the liberal method the uh, the, uh, the 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 socratic method uh, we can reason people out of their delusions you even cite um daryl davis who's managed to de-radicalize sure. members of the kkk it can be done what you're saying now though today to me suggests that you don't think that's possible when it comes to the religion of critical social justice no i believe it is possible i believe it's too slow um oh, right okay it's just yeah. like any strong delusion you have to find that point of either cognitive or emotional dissonance that causes somebody to reconsider their beliefs and it's extremely difficult and extremely slow but meanwhile this is actually being implemented in mass you know, and maybe you have a, a classroom of 30 children and maybe, you know, six of them kind of lose their mind in the process. Well, you've just lost six kids by being exposed to this. Um, ultimately, though, the answers are very simple. This uh, to how do you how do you proceed is that this this ideology, like many totalitarian ideologies, does not uh, weather criticism or uh, mockery. Well, it, it does, as, as you would know better than maybe most, um, it doesn't handle being made fun of. And the other thing it doesn't like is if you take away its ability to control words. Yeah. Right. So they say, don't call us woke anymore. That's a slur. Woke, 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 woke over and over and over again. Everything woke now. You know, they, let's go Brandon here in the U.S. as they're trying to classify it as hate speech. So what do you do? You chant it at every sporting event you can possibly imagine. Yeah. You make it, you, you cannot let them control the linguistic and rhetorical field in a practical, that's, you know, that's like, I guess, internet trolling level activism or whatever but in a more practical polite society liberal circumstance what you do is you even for everyday sounding words you demand clear definitions and you refuse to incorporate activist language if they want to say you know we have this policy we want to focus add the words and to focus on diversity 
Well, you say, well, what do you mean by diversity? Or you just refuse to, no, we don't need those words. It's already implicit. But how do we do that when the people who are implementing the policy don't understand the words they're using? So they'll say things like, uh, you know, this supermarket is now an actively anti-racist supermarket. And you can go to the managers and say, what the hell do you mean by that? And they won't really be able to tell you. Ultimately, that's what it, I hate to use kind of a lame phrase, but that's what it actually boils down to, is that a very much larger proportion of people have to become aware that their language is being subjected subverted out from under them and it's being used to manipulate them once it's they call it you know red pilling or whatever once you see it Mm. you can't unsee it you realize it's happening all around you and uh not in a weird conspiracy way like it literally like there's a lot of people are using very vague words so it's you know if we were if we were looking at some other huge problem in say industry or whatever we would say, okay, we have to figure out a way to tackle this. We have this huge mess on our hands. And what are we going to do? We're going to sit down. We're going to start developing best practices. And the best practices are everybody's going to be able to agree that we need best practices to tackle a huge problem, whether it's a supply chain disruption or whatever that's happening globally right now, largely or partly at least as a result of the pandemic. How are we going to do this? Well, we need best practices to deal with these you know, shipping backlogs. We need, we, we need to organize a strategy. Well, best practices for dealing with woke incursions turns out to be that you must become aware that anything that sounds like a woke specialist term or that's in their kind of orbit of terminology that they use um, carries an activist agenda and therefore has to be defined very clearly in a way that accords with some other value set. You must not let them control the linguistic terrain. What are the um, what are the terms people should look out for in particular? I mean, obviously, the big ones are going to be things like anti-racist, diversity, equity, and inclusion. I think one of the biggest watchwords in that people tuck into things is transformative. Mm-hmm. Transformative is a kind of Marxian watchword. Uh, I'm wary of the word community at this point. If anybody's talking about community, they're trying to organize, create kind of a shared sense of identity that somebody's going to be the spokesperson for. Well, yeah, I mean, we hear that all the time with the LGBT community. I don't yeah, think such yeah. a thing exists. I don't think it can exist. No, it's preposterous. That it's like the way they used to do this in the atheist movement. They tried to talk about the atheist community, and it's like, yeah. what are you talking about? What are we bound by? You know. But but is it is it also about uh, standing up and 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 actually challenging it? I mean, when, when so for instance, yes. when, when when the mayor of London claims that London is a systemically racist city, as he did, um, no one challenged him on that. No one said, what exactly do you mean by that? And had they done so, I doubt he would have really been able. To, in other words, I think he's parroting. The, the language of this discourse without without having any sense of what it means. That's correct. You, so you definitely have to challenge them every single time. And yeah. you have to put them on the spot to give the definition. As you know, a lot of people saw that viral video of Kendi where he was directly asked, you know, what do you mean by racism? And he just gave this very circular definition. It's when racist people do racist ideas of to make racist policy it was his definition of racism, which I thought he was just caught on the cuff, by the way. But no, it's actually the first sentence of how to be an anti-racist. Um, he actually put it in writing when he had time to think about it too. But to force them to, to say something that's obviously shallow or absurd or confused, or in fact, to force them to um, double down and do something preposterous uh and and go much further uh or for example in the united states another one right now of course pete Buttigieg, as secretary of transportation came out and said that our roads and bridges are racist so So, a lot of people mocked this but there's unfortunately a kernel of truth behind it which is that in fact many of the roadways were designed with race and racist intention behind it so one way to challenge that is well who designed that Whose idea was it? Oh, whoops. Those are all Democrat plans, you know, and to kind of throw it back. And I hate to make it directly like kind of 
in a vulgar sense, political, but if, when people are thinking in terms of power and sides, you do have to kind of like put it back on them a bit and, and play that game. And it has to happen over and over and over again to force them to, um, stumble in public. This is, I think, part of why Joe Biden doesn't take questions after his declarations he makes now, uh, because he knows if he gets challenged on these things, he's no, it's not going. Oh, his team knows he's not going to go well. It's certainly in hiding during the election campaign. It was quite striking, wasn't it, when he was actually uh, quite rigorously questioned after the withdrawal from Afghanistan because he couldn't handle it. He wasn't used to it. This is yeah, something yeah. that just didn't happen to him. No, exactly. And I mean, the the, the pers- when we live in postmodernity and we're dealing with actors who understand postmodernity, you have to understand that they understand uh, symbology, semiotics. They understand you know representation and and, yeah. and imagery. And so maintaining you have a very a president in, uh, implementing a very radical agenda in multiple domains. So the image to keep him looking as safe and grandfatherly and kind of you know separate and tired and whatever else, all that conveys an image that, oh, he can't be that dangerous, you know? Mm. And so this is all kind of very intentional, but he also obviously, this stuff is indefensible when it's getting implemented. It's literally indefensible. It's often in in violation of our most cherished values. And so, you know, this is the kind of behavior that you see to avoid getting put on the spot, uh, which means... Uh, you know, I have this kind of, you know, friend now on the internet, I haven't met him in person, Jesse Kelly and Jesse, you know, is one of his things that he says repeatedly is he's always talking about the communist, the communist, the communist. And he says, whatever the communist loves you, that's what you must attack. Well, what do they love? They love controlling the linguistic terrain attack that don't let them control it. You know, they love controlling children. Don't let them control children. They love having power. That's what they obsess over. Don't let them have power, whatever they love, take it away from them. So on a practical level, though, it, do you accept that that is easier said than done because it is oh, so, God, yes. it's so deeply embedded and something because, because I'm writing about this at the moment, it's on my mind. I'm, I'm very much trying to make what I write accessible and not to get caught in the weeds too much of, of the theories, because actually what that's what they want to happen. They want it to that's become right. incomprehensible. And actually we can make this simple and we can, and we can sort of help people and empower people to stand up to it. But I think people are just so, so scared of entering this world of jargon and obfuscation when actually we can boil this down to some very basic things. In other words, activists shouldn't be in the classroom teaching your children their ideology. That shouldn't be happening. And you, you should be, right. and you can take a stand and you don't need to be an expert in these, in these theories and these books. You can, you can do it on a matter of principle is what I'm saying. Right. And I can't stress enough that uh, satire is the, the eternal enemy of ideology and uh so kind of mockery of their use of language for example just to make it to it's hard to turn up the absurdity this is actually it turns out that marcusa even in the 60s and 70s was writing oh yeah we need to take on a very clownish form to our 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 approach you know judith butler very explicitly said you know to embrace the politics of parody so that it's very much so you know clownish and whatever why because you can't satirize that which is already satirized in a sense self-satirizing and aware of it so they tried to put up this shield against irony and against satire but the truth is is when we I actually read a book about how kind of, you know, these linguistic manipulation kind of totalitarian ideologies come up uh, and how they they rise and fall. And it, it actually said, that, you know, there is the language that's a first language. And then the activists create kind of a double meaning second language 
that they use in parallel. And then eventually what happens is that the society catches on and they start derisively and mockingly use the terms, yes. uh, you know, so you, you could think of, you know, it's all the, the, the very dry, dark humor of the Soviets, you know, you can even think of like Yakov Smirnov with his whole bit. It was like in Soviet Russia, you know, tank does you, or, you know, just reverse everything. And yeah. so what it was actually start to do is to use their specialist language back against them. I guarantee you, you watch, you, you would know. They, they Titania knows they can't abide it. They not only can they not abide it, they don't understand it. I mean, the, the, the obvious recent example, I did a Titania McGrath live show in the West End recently, a couple of weeks ago, you know, this, and you know, Daily Mail gives it five stars, says it's hilarious. The Guardian gives it one star, says, what are we laughing at here? So it even starts talking about the ableist language, not not at all attempting to understand what's being done here because they're the, because we're laughing at them. And they, yeah. they, they don't they don't they sent Titania to review the show. It's perfect. It's, it's the best. It turns out this is the way. Um, that's a very effective thing. And what that actually does is it, it seemed how that's not very, you know, liberal. Well, first of all, Voltaire, come on. Uh, yes, it is. But, um, it opens the way for the more serious people, say in parliament or in corporate boardrooms to be able to do what they need to do, but it also deflates. I mean, I think honestly that, that, you know, we had the civil rights acts in the United States passed in the 1960s and obviously racism did not go away. Um, in the 1970s and eighties though, what you started to see was a massive rise of comedy, yeah. massive rise of comedy picking. If you look at, if you look at what the black comedians of the 1980s were doing in early 1990s, and I guess late 1970s, if you look at that and then you look at this critical whiteness studies which is to generate an awareness of what it means to be white and that white has a culture and that, you know, it, it's not the archetype of humanity as it's phrased in some of the woke literature, you know, yeah. that it's just funny too. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. Or for the woke though, it's shameful, but for the comedians, it was funny. It opened up the ability for people to poke fun at themselves and to relax assumptions. And I think that did more to dissolve racism than, so much else serious because now the serious work, because now the people going into the boardroom or going into the Congress or going into the parliament or whatever, they know that joke in the back of their head. They watched it on TV too. They laughed at themselves already. And now, you know, when you've deflated yourself a little bit, you're going to approach an issue differently. Right. And I actually think that that's the key. And the same thing has to happen here. That racism was a supremacy movement it's an ideology it is it, this race is better than that race or that race is worse than this race that's an ideology and it got absolutely punctured and deflated through humor once the structural conditions exist to be able to do so now we're under a different kind of uh thumb or boot if you will and laughing at the boot it, deflates it's, it it's difficult though because they don't recognize themselves as being the establishment right so therefore I know. And, and you and you can see you can see how it works in in, in much the same way that you're describing for instance you know, the television series brass eye which satirized the, the the style of documentary and news reporting and then all of a sudden actually the the, the, the way the news was reported modified didn't quite go to the lengths that had been mocked in that series because i think people sort of realized that it can have an effect but if you don't that know you're... its own joke though right it's yeah. like a meta joke so, yeah. like, the left can't meme is its own meme. If you don't recognize that, that you are in a position of power and therefore that you, you will be the targets of satire, if you don't recognize, if you think you're the underdog while you're the establishment, then maybe it, satire won't have this effect. I mean, I'm, I go back and forth about this, about whether, whether mocking this is working or not. I, I do think it actually works better than every other thing because what it does, you know, at the end of the day, there are really not that many avenues to power. And in the West, we have a very strong, you know, 
visceral level understanding that power should be somehow with consent of the governed. So if you can satirize it and get that uh, consent of the governed to fall out beneath the regime, all they have left is, as Mao put it, you know, power flows from the barrel of a gun, at which point they delegitimize themselves further. The goal is then to use satire not to get them to change their behavior because they don't understand it, but to get other people to see them as clowns, which delegitimizes their basis of power and puts them in actually a, a delegitimization spiral that they've put themselves into. And, and so I think the goal, you have to understand who the audience is. The audience isn't them specifically, just like the racist, you know, the, or the jokes about race didn't really impact the racists in the 1970s and yeah, 80s yeah. and 90s. They impacted everybody else to where it was just impossible to maintain racism and a sense of being serious after a time. Exactly. You've got to keep an eye on what the audience is. It's like, it's like when, when The Guardian slated my show, a friend of mine texted me saying, it's like they're in on the joke. It makes it funnier. You know, this, yeah. this, this, this is the thing. Do, do you feel that this is why we're seeing these scenes now outside of Netflix, of, of Netflix staff uh, turning on Dave Chappelle and sort of going, why why comedians of this kind are, are you know, it, and, and it is having an effect, I have to say, insofar as up and coming comedians don't go near this stuff on the whole because they think, well, I'm not going to get on Netflix. I'm not going to get on the BBC. It's working. You know what I mean? And so the, the intimidation is is having an effect. It is now. Uh, I mean, again, this is just a thing that every time it happens, it delegitimizes it a little bit further. And it also, there are growing alternatives to where what will happen is either Netflix is going to clean up its act or there's going to be something that gives people the, unless they do a full totalitarian clampdown, yeah. Netflix will become irrelevant. It will. The goal is to make to put Netflix into the decision dilemma of stop doing this crap or become irrelevant against things that are better than you that are, people are going to gravitate toward. Yeah, I'm totally content with watching Netflix fall out of existence, just like Blockbuster fell out of existence before. Totally content to see Netflix become irrelevant. Oh, you won't get your Netflix special. Who wants a Netflix special? <laughs> That's like the freaking right. woke network. Who wants to be on that? What a joke. You know, yeah. oh, well, you know, it's not, it's not, it used to be like, you know, what sexual favor did you have to pre perform to get to that, you know, whatever. Now it's like, you know, how did you have to debase yourself politically? You have to become a, you have to become cringe to be on Netflix. Who wants to yeah. be on Cringe Network? I actually think because I, I, I think when I saw that footage and I saw the, the 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 sort of comedians holding the sign saying we like jokes, getting berated by one of the Netflix staff shouting repent in his face. Yeah, and he <laughs> took his sign and broke it, and then gave him the stick back, and then said he has a weapon. Right, right. So, and then so, the article about that, by the way, just to point out how absurd this all is, is that he, they said that Dave Chappelle told the trans jokes and his special from his position, I shit you not, of white privilege. Well, They're they that absurd. Really? That, and that was literally a Dave Chappelle thing, like the black white supremacist that he used to do on his show. So exactly. So this sort of stuff, you know, on the one hand, I find it depressing because I think, oh, I can't believe this is happening. On the other hand, I sort of think, great, because now more people see how absurd this is. Now people are actually... They're exposing themselves is what I'm saying. That has to be encouraged to the maximum degree and to the minimum degree. So the because the other side, when you start to get discouraged, you start to get frustrated on the other side of discouraged and then you start thinking the only way out of this is going to be something like violence. Yeah. And that's the last thing we want. That's the last thing anybody wants. We will actually want to just laugh them out of their position of power, where if they try to come out and make their woke proclamation, they can come out and do it and people 
just start snickering. And to come back to this idea of accessibility and making things, you know, showing how these these ideas are comprehensible and we can understand their thought process. You have been compiling, of course, a woke dictionary online on your new discourses website, which I do urge everyone to go and see. If you're confused about a term such as whiteness, uh, white privilege, anti-racism, you've got an entry for all of these things, which not only explains them in very accessible terms, but also cites some of the sources of where these have come from. So you have you have them in their own words as well and as we've said they condemn themselves with their own words yeah every almost every time it's amazing yeah so i mean this is is this something that you've now finished now or is there more to come oh lord no there's no finishing that thing first of all it grows um and second of all i've been so i've mostly put to it with travel engagements this year Uh, i've I've been on the road quite a lot and i've written a book (laughs) and i've recorded i think something like 120 podcasts or something of my own episodes you know long form i I just have not had time to dedicate to it the way that i had hoped i would so i've got some 150 or so uh defined terms and there are probably 600 total that i'm shooting at uh, so no, it's not complete by any means. And because but, they keep uh, changing definitions, you're going to have to keep. Well, that too. It's like I ended it. up having to do an entry for honest history. I had to do a term like an entry for birthing people. Like those weren't when I started it. Those weren't even things people said. No, <laughs> birthing brown people fragility the came out of the ground. Also, brown privilege, brown fragility, brown complicity, brown solidarity. Like all these things came right out of the ground. And can I can I ask what the book is about? Yeah, it's uh, it's about critical race theory, the one that I've just written. I'm just getting through into the last phases, you know, cleaning up the bibliography, making sure it's all, you know, correct, doing the f- typesetting and the formatting, and should be out fairly soon. We're going to publish it through New Discourses, uh, kind of self-publishing, yeah. uh, through the company, and it's called Race Marxism. And so, what it, it tries to do is it, defining critical race theory. The second chapter is what does critical race theory believe, and it goes through kind of the main tenets of critical race theory. I think I cover 13 or 14 of them and then so it's quite meaty and then the third chapter is where did this come from in the last 100 years and then it's where did that come from in the preceding 150 years that's three and four chapters the fifth chapter is how does it work what does it do Uh, and the kind of the meta thesis of that chapter is critical race theory is as critical race theory does so um, it's not about teaching the theory as an academic thing it's it's about how it acts what it does and then that must be understood and then the last chapter is what are some things we can do about this how should we think about going forward and so you know it's actually quite long and heavy i quote them extensively uh throughout the book so people can see for themselves that this is actually the argument that they're making i think it's really Uh, important because we're going to need that more and more in the uk by the way because i think we're a good we're a few years behind you i know this says there's there's some lawsuits going on in america where parents are sort of challenging this now in their schools but we've we're just getting it bit by bit we had one school in london recently segregating kids after school for extracurricular activities segregating them by race by the way which is the obvious endpoint of praxis of critical race theory it's the obvious it's what happens when you apply it you know and I think right. I think a book like that will be really, really helpful, I think. Yeah, I think I, I'm hoping so. And so, you know, like I said, it's a, it, it's called race Marxism. Yeah. Uh, and it, so it that tells you what the, the focus is and how how is this actually a repackaging of Marxism, which is a little bit sad. I'd actually started writing it and then I discovered another critical race theory book because it turns out there are a lot of them. There's a fellow named Charles Mills who's most famous for what he calls a racial contract. And of course, I was citing him in the book and discussing his idea of the racial contract. He died recently. Um, Charles Mills did. And 
I understand he was a very nice human being, but, uh, he, he, he died recently, but he had a book in 2003 or something that's literally titled from class to race. <laughs> it's like, Oh, okay. <laughs> and it's like essays on white Marxism and critical race theory or something like that is the subtitle. It's like, uh, smoking gun. All right. Gotcha. I think it's, it's wonderful work that you're doing and, uh, thank you very much for doing it and, uh, and particularly for updating your website so regularly. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today on the podcast. I really appreciate it, Jim. Yeah, it was great. Good to see you again. This has been Free Speech Nation, the podcast for GB News, with me, Andrew Doyle, and my guest, James Lindsay. Do check out some of James's other work. You can go to newdiscourses.com for a range of articles that he's written about the social justice movement, as well as his woke encyclopedia. You can also read the book that he wrote with Helen Pluckrose, which is called Cynical Theories, How Universities Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity, and Why This Harms Everybody. He also wrote a fantastic book with Peter Bogosian called How to Have Impossible Conversations, A Very Practical Guide. Please do join me on the next episode of the Free Speech Nation podcast next week, where I'll be talking to another fantastic guest. Farewell.